Welcome to Black Box by Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa Esbekuldova. Joining me today is Dean Wilson, Professor of Criminology in the School of Law, Politics and Sociology at the University of Sussex, to discuss pre-crime and preemptive imaginaries, predictive policing and surveillance. Welcome to the show, Dean. Thank you, Teresa. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> In 2016, you co-authored a book titled Pre-Crime, Preemption, Precaution and the Future with Jude McCulloch, published by Routledge. Upon hearing the expression predictive policing, many come to think of the movie Minority Report based on Philip K. Dick's 1956 short story. You borrow the term pre-crime from the science fiction to make a broader point. You use the concept of pre-crime to argue that anticipating crime and preempting would-be criminals are no longer confined to fantasy. It is now the rationale for profound and very real changes in contemporary approaches to security, crime and justice. You also argue that pre-crime has become a major trend in criminal justice, roughly since 9-11 attacks on the US, the declaration of war on terror and more preemptive approaches to security. Could you explain what pre-crime is? How does the logic of preemption differ from crime prevention and post-crime and risk-focused criminal justice frames? Or else, what is new about this pre-crime imaginary and why is it important that we care? Uh, good question. <laughs> uh, pre uh, uh, thank you for the introduction and for pointing to Minority Report, which uh, is... A film which, interestingly, now looks looks uh, a lot of the inventions have come to pass, and it looks quite dated now if you watch the film. But in terms of the book in pre-crime, we were really arguing about a major shift since 9-11 in the the security logics that operate, and drawing from 9-11 was the idea of needing to know the unknowable or to anticipate highly unlikely future events. And that that logic of trying to anticipate highly unlikely future events was closely intertwined and, and propelled to some extent by technological developments that allowed the collection of vast amounts of data and allowed the joining together, I guess, of databases and security in a way that could be used to attempt to anticipate what would happen in the future and even very events that were highly unlikely to happen. Um, it was the attempt to know what Donald Rumsfeld in the United States famously called at the time unknown unknowns. The, the things or, or, which is sometimes described as black swan events, those, those things that will, you know, are highly unlikely to occur but might occur. Now, what myself and, and Jude were writing about in the book was really um, how this anticipation of the highly unlikely, the catastrophic, if you like, um, the, the catastrophic event um, had come to dominate security thinking. But... It dominate, came to dominate it in important ways that drifted down, I guess, into more quotidian spaces of, of policing and security. So more into the, the everyday, rather than remain in the area of high policing um, in terms of the policing of, of terrorism and the policing of organised crime, it was starting to drift into sort of everyday practice in various ways and inform the logics of the criminal justice system itself, 
and policing. And that is where I first became interested in predictive policing because it was in some ways um, and remains a kind of symbol of this movement um, of that sort of, you know, the movement from from high policing to low policing, if you like, of this pre-crime logic, um, the idea that you could anticipate um, who would commit a future crime, which again is straight out, you know, it, it just invites reference to Minority Report because it is that. And you had cases like in Chicago where they attempted to assemble a heat list of likely offenders that even reached the stage of knocking on people's doors to sort of warn them that they were considered likely to commit an offence because they had appeared on this on this heat list. At the time, too, we... 9-11 in some ways fueled but didn't start a, a sort of growing technological fetishism within security agencies and a, a sort of faith in, in what these new tools could do, um, particularly um, database, what was for a time called just data mining, uh, but, it, you know, is the use of it, use of algorithms within databases, um, the, the sort of excitement about what this could possibly do and with major sort of um, innovations or, or attempted innovations, um, the most sort of outlandish at the time concept was the American proposal for total information awareness, which was to sort of try and bring together everything from kind of local library records to criminal databases to airline, you know, airline records. So it was trying to suture together just a, a multitude of databases into this total system that would then, through data mining, be able to produce indications or risk indicators, not only of, you know, general patterns, but down to the, the individual level of who was, who was likely to be. In, in this case, it was still focused on who would be a, a sort of terrorist offender. And, and, and the same logic in the United States ran through the founding of the Department of Homeland Security and the, the sort of um, the Department of Homeland Security fusion centres, which were fusion, the word itself kind of, uh, you know, explaining what their purpose was to bring together all these different databases. And it's an interesting, you know, coalescing of, of uh, a, a pre-crime logic, of technology vendors who have a vested interest in these kind of security threats and in actually sort of energising these security threats because they forge markets for new technologies and, and make them attractive to security agencies. Um, so those were the questions we were looking at in the book. And the area that particularly started to fascinate me, I guess, is someone who's 
looked primarily at, at policing was how was this starting to reshape um, policing agencies and the work of policing. Fabulous. Uh, I was wondering, uh, you mentioned this uh, thing that it went from high level policing, from this idea of catastrophic, from terror, from counterterrorism into the kind of everyday mundane policing, right? And this brings me to uh, a question, if you could elaborate uh, what the relation actually is between this kind of pre-crime and preemptive policing and zero tolerance and this kind of broken windows theories uh, and, and uh, this war on crime on the streets, war on drugs. And then we, it, it keeps extending, right? We can, we see more and more wars, war, war on harassment in the workplace and similar. So we see the, the logic is kind of swallowing more and more types of behaviors are being encompassed by the logic. You have these uh, antisocial behavior orders which you write about, introduced in UK in 1998. Uh, but we see more and more of these of this logic kind of playing out, playing itself out. Uh, could you say something more about, about the zero tolerance logic and how it is related to this pre-crime ideas? I think this is a complex question because the I'd like to give a clear answer, but I'll, I think I'm still thinking through some of this because I think we are undergoing a, in terms of policing, um, and I, I think you suggest some interesting potentials there because I think it is a logic that's spreading out. Um, there is a bit of a temporal shift in some ways. Pre-crime logic was very much about anticipating um, future unlikely threats or... Um, stopping a threat before it materialised. Um, and the example I gave before from Chicago, of the Chicago Police Department's heat list was an example of that, knocking on someone's door to alert them to the fact that they were being, that they were under surveillance because they were likely to commit an offence. Um, zero tolerance comes in in terms of I guess, anticipating who is a likely offender. The logic of zero tolerance was always that logic of sort of likely offenders and stopping them before they became uh, um, more serious offenders. So in the pre-crime logic, you stop them before they become even minor offenders. <laughs> in, in, in that sort of logic, that's how the logic sort of drifts down. But increasingly in sort of in the technologization of or the digitalization of policing and in other aspects, the idea is not so much that sort of future orientation as it is an orientation towards the the instant. The actual it's like a kind of conflation of the timing. So if you look at the new technologies, what they are about, there's a, there's a, there's a quotation from Motorola, who uh, are a company that's very involved in digital technologies for policing. And, that, and they say, so they promote their technologies, and it's a whole range from body-worn cameras to predictive policing technologies, et cetera, that all, all comes together in one package. And 
they promote it as enabling the officer to be able to change the, to, the, the trajectory of that moment while still in that moment. So the idea is that the increasing speed um, of the technologies allows you to accelerate this to the point where you're not acting on a more distant future, but you're actually acting upon and transforming the immediate moment as it happens. So I'm not sure I'm answering your question directly there, <laughs> Teresa, I'm sorry, but it's just something that fascinates me, that I, I do see a very significant shift occurring at the moment, which is from, I guess, distant projected or catastrophic futures towards a kind of acting upon a perpetual present in which you can you can fabricate order and um, it is shifting in a way towards kind of near real-time governance right and yes, and we it, see it also in the kind of pandemic governance where you come with new graphs and new numbers and uh, and you you respond with new prohibitions and restrictions and uh, opening and closing in response to these kind of datafied uh, visualized products right that appear neutral and objective and and so on so i think uh, the, the the imaginary is very similar and and i i would argue myself that it is spreading into ever new areas of governance and this kind of originally Maybe a management logic, management by objectives, by numbers, by performance management is kind of spreading into, with these technologies, to a kind of uh, near real-time data-driven governance, uh, maybe. This... I like, I, I, real-term governance is a very good way to describe it. And I think it is, I think policing is but one manifestation of it. And it, it is a, a more generalised um, it's a more generalised socio-technical imaginary, but it does certainly impact upon policing and security. But I do see it. I, I, I wonder, though, I, I, I don't think the pre-crime logic that myself and Jude McCulloch wrote about in 2016 has gone. I mean, I think that logic still operates. I think there's a number of temporal sequences um, operating simultaneously, but in terms of the sort of discursive construction of this, I certainly see this it, the, the pursuit of instantaneousness. It, it seems to have be, it become like the driving objective, um, and and that sort of is, and and there's a kind of in that a. <laughs> A detachment or a, or a complete, um, an almost uh, complete atomization. So each event is an isolated event in itself to be acted upon. There is no social. Um, social questions become irrelevant as just a series of instantaneous events that kind of, you know, dealt with as they materialize and the, 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 the social is essentially disappears. It's in, in the, I, I should I should clarify here. I'm not actually saying that this is that this is happening. I mean, em, empirical fieldwork will reveal a much messier reality, and the social will still be significant. But what always interests me as a, as a researcher is the imaginary 
um, that is because there there is the imaginary never materializes. You know, this is almost a a banal point, but the the imaginary never materializes at, in its vision, and and that is a good thing <laughs> in many ways, but it does inform the material reality. And that's why I find it so important. Um, what, what are the rationalities behind these changes? And, and that's where I find it really, really fascinating. That, that, but that, that shift is the one that I see as most significant, is the shift towards instantaneousness, um, it, which is, uh, I draw that term from Paul Virilio, who I must say, when looking at, at these temporal issues, um, it, while he's a rather flamboyant theorist, um, he's very insightful on these sorts of issues. Talk about uh, selling promises uh, <laughs> when it comes to these uh, technological companies. They're all selling a promise of security, basically, right? Uh, and, uh, and But I think uh, at the same time as they keep selling the promise of security, they, they have to keep selling the, 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 the narrative of threat and narrative of fear and suspicion, right? So we see a proliferation of uh, uh, suspicious uh, acts uh, and, and there is a... I would say generalize, and you also write it in the book that pre-crime substitutes suspicion for the presumption of innocence, right? So suspicion comes to dominate. And we are also increasingly encouraged to see the other through the lens of suspicion, right? Nobody is to be trusted. We have systems for verification and, and so on. So uh, this kind of generally seems to undermine trust uh, and, and so, so forth and fuel fear. Uh, but of course, uh, when you try to criticize this, you run into the problem that, uh, <laughs> that uh, security is always already positioned as a good, right? So how do you argue against, uh, against security? Uh, basically, this is, the, is, is, I think, the simple question. Uh, because you also write, uh, obviously, security is not a good for everybody or everything. Yet categorizing issues as matters of security tends to foreclose debate and mask issues of social and political power. Uh, so so how, do, how would you argue against security in, the, in this context where security has actually become a form of sacred almost? Are you willing to sacrifice a lot in, in its name? Uh, well, this is the, uh, this is sort of the fairly well rehearsed in some ways argument of security versus liberty that we've been having. It, it, it's a long-standing debate, but it, it goes, or certainly is given significant life after 9-11 when, when, you know, people were actually prepared to sacrifice far more liberty to security than perhaps they would have previously. Um, it's a very sensitive issue, but you, you have to ask if that isn't happening now to some extent as well. Um, I would take a slightly different view from that sort of security versus liberty debate because I, I, I wouldn't see myself as arguing against security itself. What I'm more interested in personally 
is the development of control systems. Um, and the liberty starts to reduce as the control systems advance. And, you know, I would have to confess that one small article that I think was probably the most brilliant article ever written and, again, is something that is starting to really look more and more of an accurate foresight into the future is Deleuze's postscript on societies of control because I, I, I think um, the security versus liberty argument tends to be rooted in a sort of liberal democratic premise that we, we as a society or often we're talking about as a nation will debate in a civil manner the appropriate balance between security versus liberty. Um, that is not how I see sort of uh, contemporary societies um, functioning or the contemporary global economy. I would see what I, I would see that a lot of the security issues are control issues. And they are control systems that face both outward and inward. So the focus on border control, for example, um, one of the arguments in a lot of the critical literature on that is that the techniques of control and surveillance that are enacted at borders um, eventually start to become more widespread. So they become generalised systems of control. And um, so I don't think it's a matter of arguing against security. I think it's a matter of maintaining a critical awareness of how control systems manifest themselves and of the complex interplay between um, technologies, economy and control that sort of is evident in these systems. So... Again, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, really, Teresa, but that's, uh, <laughs> I, 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 think, I think the crucial issue is, is really the sorts of... I will sort of answer it. And I'll say, you know, you can, have, you can probably never have total security... But the closer you get to total security, the closer you get to total control. And, 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 then, and then we really do enter Deleuzean territory <laughs> in, in, in terms of societies of control. I think that's uh, well summarized. <laughs> <laughs> You have, uh, you have said a couple of words earlier on the role of imagination and that you're interested in imagination. And I like this one point in uh, the book where you say that the role of imagination is denied in the implementation of pre-crime. And I think this goes also for predictive policing technologies. The language of science, mathematics, police and intelligence, expertise and political authority is used to mask the central place of imagination in pre-crime. And... Uh, Indeed, today we are bombarded with concepts such as intelligence, let's policing, data-driven and evidence-based decision-making. Uh, and all of these 
terms and also the promotional material that comes with this, uh, these software technologies, uh, they come with a sort of illusion of objectivity, neutrality. They, they try to look as cold, hard uh, facts uh, and so on. Uh, and on all of these technologies and softwares and so on are directed at managing future crime threats and, and but also at managing the police forces themselves. Um, and so you have written a great deal about the historical evolution of these imaginaries. And I, we haven't really discussed this yet. And it would really interest me if you could say a few words about, about how these kind of ideas where we can see a mixture of techno-solutionism merging with this kind of naive positivism of big data uh, that provides it with a veneer of a kind of mathematical security uh, and, uh, and this logic of security. How did it come to into being because I mean we see there's a lot of history in scientific management in in similar logics right this whole logic of modernity uh, how how did it come into into existence basically you offer some very good uh, historical reflections in your work so <laughs> yes I think I I, I I do think it is it, it, the the history of these imaginaries is is really crucial and not examined enough and I am interested in doing that I think you can trace it, you can actually trace it back, it, it, I will stick sort of with what I know, I, I think you can certainly trace it back to the birth of policing but to sort of look at what we have now the real starting point is certainly in scientific management in the 1920s and 30s. That's a big influence in terms of the quantification of tasks and the fragmentation of tasks. But in terms of policing, it's really post-World War II in the United States where you begin to see, first of all, the application of what was called systems analysis, which is which is what we probably more commonly know now as cost-benefit analysis, and the application of that to large agencies in the United States and particularly large government agencies, and the police were no exception. So it's the application of that. And then a development which was closely linked and, and often you know, ran in tandem with systems analysis was computerisation. So you get, for example, the first computerised um, dispatch system, the police dispatch system in San Diego in 1962, and the idea of sort of automating um, the, the dispatch of police officers um, to calls to, to calls for service, and there becomes a, a, a faith that you could. It, you could reach a sort of point of perfect efficiency where you would be able to almost auto, you would be able to automate the system in various ways and police would become hyper-efficient responding to calls for service. And there was even a, a whole sort of subfield that arose called police patrol analysis, which had its origins actually in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. But this applied sort of various algorithmic models to police dispatch to try and anticipate um, future demand, essentially, for police services. The idea being that you could allocate your resources much more efficiently by anticipating where, where and when 
um, future calls for service would, would arise. And this was linked to automatic, you know, a, a strong desire for automatic vehicle monitoring. So if you could spatially locate each officer or each patrol car at all times, um, then you would, you would be able to distribute them with far greater sort of efficiency. So there became a desire to sort of know where the officer was at all times. Um, and this sort of, this was a long-standing sort of aspiration of police managers, but it, it started to take on a more material reality. Now, again, we run up against the empirical context or the material context because a lot of this didn't work all that well. Um, and, and a lot of the sort of grand plans, there was a plan in, in Los Angeles for an enormous underground bunker that was, that was going to command and, con, you know, be computerised command and control with flashing lights of each patrol car. And, and, and that sort of turned out to be massively over budget. They couldn't afford it. It was never built, you know, like... A, a, and automatic vehicle monitoring, there are a lot of early failures with that. Um, and they also ran up against another, and this is where perhaps this is perhaps something that would be of interest to SDS scholars who might be able to make far more of it with me but, than me. But one of the big problems was that they started 911 numbers that allowed the public to phone in for police services, and they were overwhelmed with calls. So the system kind of collapsed under the sort of, you know, the torrent of information that was that was the torrent of communication just the systems were not in the end that effective um but it did start an imaginary of sort of what was possible and there's a fascinating film from 1967 a promotional film that was put out by the los angeles police department called the the instant cop and this is all about police and communications. And it says quite explicitly in, in this promotional film that, you know, the idea is, is essentially that, that you know, the, the, a, a police officer going, is going to appear, you know, where, wherever something's happening almost instantly. And this is the sort of best way. And it's all going to be done through computers and communications. So they had like in car that they, had the idea of in-car telephones and in-car computers, and they were already thinking about these things. But the idea was that. Um, and there's an interesting background to this because a lot of these proposals arose out of the urban disorder in the United States in the 1960s, and particularly the race riots and Watts. The Watts riots um, were a stimulation for this because the Los Angeles Police Department was overwhelmed. And in some other parts of the United States, they'd used a technique that they called wall-to-wall cops, which was essentially just to flood an area with masses of officers. But that was not cost-effective because it, you, you ended up having to hire... Um, huge amounts of officers for events that were not regular occurrences. So the instant cop 
was in some ways another response to that, that you could use technology to efficiently distribute resources. And it did actually have a, a kind of military function um, in terms of it was meant to be able to deal with not only with with day day to day policing, but with exceptional events such as riot. So, and it's worth mentioning at that juncture that a lot of these technologies and concepts were also advanced by the Vietnam War, and the ideas of you know figures such as Robert McNamara, who tried to use statistics, to, to, you know, for troop allocations, and and you know a lot of the research into this were agencies like the the Institute of Defense Analysis that had actually done work um, with the US military um, in Vietnam. So they, it, it, there was a crossover there uh, in terms of, um, you know, military and civilian applications, which sort of continues to this day, it must be said. But I probably rambled on a bit much there, but that, that, that's how I would, um, that, that's the importance of the history, I guess, and it's where I see the imaginaries emerging from. I don't see, say, for example, when I look at the promotional material of Motorola or IBM or the other sort of technology manufacturers, and they are promoting this idea of instantaneousness, I don't see the idea of instantaneousness as anything particularly new. Um, it's just, it's evolved and evolved into different contexts. I think digitalization um, gives it added impetus and perhaps some added credibility. It makes it seem slightly more plausible because if we look at society generally, the, the promise of everything being instant surrounds us um, and policing is, is merely in some ways reflecting that broader, that broader social pattern or, or development. So I don't see anything particularly... Um, yeah, I, I see an evolution of an idea. And with all this, I, I focus on policing, but, you, you know... It, you could look at this in a much more broader social context because, in my view, it's all linked to the economy. Um, it's the economy that fuels this. And if you don't look at policing in relation to, to the economy, um, it will all seem somewhat random or it, it, it will seem, you know, <laughs> the economy, the shifts in the economy explain the shifts in policing. So essentially, if you look at what was happening in the 1960s, it was like policing was trying to, was mirroring developments in industry. So it was trying to become like a hyper-efficient a hyper industrial organisation. That was, that, that was sort of the feature. Well, absolutely, and we see that today the predictive policing technologies there embraced largely largely or partially at least due to the pressures on budgets, right? Uh, budget well, cuts that, and, and that, so on that, of the police just, forces. Absolutely. I mean, that just pervades the, um, the discourse around predictive policing. It was, it, it, first of all, predictive policing emerges in 2008 after the fin fin financial crisis. 
it directly looked towards the model of large retailers like Target Corporation and the efficiencies they could they could gain in their operations through data mining and and predictive analytics. So using predictive analytics to know what customers want um, was, you know, retooled for the policing context in the idea that if you knew what customers want and you could predict their, if, if you could predict a consumer's shopping behaviour, you could predict an offender's offending behaviour. That it, it put simply, that is the that is the logic behind it. But also was the idea of doing more with less. Because after the financial crisis in the United States, police departments across the US, and not only the US, and other, you know, many other jurisdictions as well, the, the budgets were cut, they, they had less offices. So the appeal of the technology, which said, well, actually, although you've lost 20% of your workforce, you can actually become this sort of super efficient high-tech operation was in some ways irresistible to, to, to a lot of police managers. Absolutely. But I would return also a little bit before the financial crisis. I mean, the, the, there is a significant role to be had there of private consultancy companies. Uh, and we see it uh, across the board since the 1970s. You have private consultancy companies coming into police forces, helping to manage them, effectivize them and so on. And you write also uh, in uh, in the book of Comstat, uh, or I think in one of your articles, which was initiated in the 1990s in the New York City. Uh, and you point out that it was first and foremost a police management paradigm. And I think this is this is interesting. Maybe you can tell us more about the Comstat uh, and how it functioned. Oh, that's uh, Comstat is fascinating, and, and it's uh, in my view it's fascinating for the reason that. There's a, there's a link often drawn between Comstat and zero-tolerance policing. That did happen, but I think it's important to separate those two, those two things because Comstat, as I say, was a management paradigm. And in, again, if we look at the economy, a lot of this, I think, is actually due to the end of the gold, to Nixon taking the US dollar off the gold standard, if we want to get into the macro picture of it. But essentially, it's to do with the financial crises of the 1970s um, and the changes in management philosophies. So police agencies um, begin to restructure and reflect the, the changes within business organisations. So less of the top-down Fordist-style command and control that had characterised the agencies in the 1960s towards this idea of more flexible lateral kind of structures. To, to And these structures were often sort of um, promoted as... Um, enabling innovation, enabling creativity and enabling more flexible responses to um, police problems. And important here is problem-oriented policing, actually, because that was a response to two things in some ways. I mean, problem-oriented policing was... Um, 
a response to that structural problem, but it also involved bringing in management consultants to look at the structures of policing. And, and you do start to get that in the 1970s. Um, you, you get this sort of flood of management consultants coming into policing agencies and advising them on, on better structures. But it also was this idea of sort of empowering sort of officers and more flexible structures, which I think comes through with that. It's problem-oriented policing and community policing lay the groundwork for the datification and policing in that they were both sort of data-based ideas um, and they would allow um, police to collect lots of data and not just criminal records. So the idea was that you would, you would come up with imaginative solutions to problems by thinking laterally, engaging with other agencies. So there's a couple of structural things that happen is that police agencies are encouraged to become more open to other agencies and be part of a network of interested parties. Now, those parties can obviously be business and, and private enterprise as, as well as it, often it's talked about in terms of communities, but it was also a significant part, particularly of problem-oriented um, policing, that those agencies were business or, or, or enterprise. So there's that stage to it. The other is that these changes were actually a response to concerns about the strength of police unionism in the 1970s and a number of significant labour strikes by police unions in the 1970s. And what problem-oriented policing and community policing did was increasingly fragment the police workforce or, you know, make it less... It made it more autonomous and innovative for individual officers, but it it, it didn't do this. I should say, police organisations are notoriously resistant to change. So I'm I'm merely describing what some of the underlying rationales were, and I don't say that that necessarily happened. But the the objective was to essentially fragment the workforce more and and and, and render it more amenable. Um, to management. Now, when we come to Comstat, Comstat was the embodiment of business-style competition within policing agencies. So you had, um, you know, section precinct chiefs who were now responsible for their, for their precinct, and that precinct would be in competition with another precinct, and all this was, you know, it was all about the stats Comstat, and uh, you know it, it, these these sort of weekly meetings of uh, of all the the precinct chiefs who would then have to show their stats for the week, and you, you know th this is demonstrated quite uh, quite vividly and quite realistically, I think, in in the TV series The Wire. If you've ever watched that, you, you know you'll see the weekly meetings of the you know the, of this. So, but it didn't, it, 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 was, it was really about um, doubling down on middle management to enhance competition. It didn't really get down to the individual officer level so much in terms of tight control, but it did try and turn them in, turn police agencies into internally competitive organisations. Um, and, and it very much mirrored contemporary management philosophy. It, 
philosophy concepts of teamwork and flexible, you know, flexible organisation and, and, you know, results-driven um, work. Um, now, there's all sorts of, you know, perverse incentives that arose in the system and, you know, I think anyone who's worked in an organisation where these sort of philosophies are, are dominant will, will, you know, completely relate to how odd the outcome the you know the environment can become in those those sort of circumstances, but that was that predictive policing. In some ways, then continued that logic on, but I think it started to facilitate a further shift where it moved from precinct chiefs down to individual offices. So that it enhanced control over the work, potentially, I should say. I'm not. Again, we have to be clear when we're talking about the imaginaries and the difference between that and the material realities. But I think there, there was an idea of tight, uh, of tighter workforce control, and actually, you know, Bill Bratton, who who uh, the American. Uh, police chief who's now in private enterprise but who was the chief of police for Los Angeles and New York it was, was a very influential figure in Comstat it wrote a fascinating article um, called about Comstat Plus and its relationship to performance management and police workforces and it, it you know it, it, it's clear that he's envisaging data as something that will allow for, for a much more highly efficient and tightly controlled workforce. And, and I think you, you do see that most of these um, technologies, and they're increasingly suites of technologies, not just an individual. Predictive policing is only like one element within a whole range of technologies, but many of them have specific performance developments, uh, performance management software packages and you know that's that that performance management aspect is or workforce management aspect is an important aspect of this digitalization of policing i think absolutely and uh, one thing that we uh, we have talked about uh, the role of predictive policing and the imaginary of effectization and efficiency and so on and actually that's the logic of optimization right optimizing uh, resources that one has and so forth but we see that all these technological imaginaries that we find these days in uh, are also underpinned by a kind of behaviorism and behavioral economics uh, and this again ties into performance management uh, i was wondering if you have some thoughts on on uh, the influence of behaviorism and behavior economics on policing uh, is there a link uh, to be had? I, I don't know. It's just <laughs> wow. That's a, that, a good question. I mean, I, 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 it's probably something I, I, I would like to investigate a lot more. The bits that did a few small things I've come across. Um, I mean, I have been looking at it primarily. I, I, I should clarify that. You know, I've been I've been looking at this primarily in terms of police organisation and, 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 and sort of impacts on policing. But what, one of the fascinating things I saw was the idea 
put forward in some a report that was produced by Axon Corporation, who were formerly Taser, and it, it it was putting forward the idea that police could, in their downtime, um, watch their own body cam footage. Um, to sort of be in a state of continuous improvement, that they could, that they could sort of, you know, come home in the evenings and just, you know, put, watch their own body body cam footage and, and think about how they might have, done, you know, made each interaction a bit better or where they could improve in, in some sort of way, which, I, you, you know, it's. And, and a lot of the technologies, which do actually go down to the level of the body, so you get suggestions of these kind of sensorised uniforms that will measure heartbeats and, you know, physical health, are about a kind of... It, it is essentially perpetual performance management, or that is the concept. And, and in the article, Bratton and, I must say, he... It, it's Bretton and Malinowski because he writes this with Shane Malinowski, who is uh, the head of the Los Angeles Police Department um, Control uh, or Real Time Intelligence Centre. Uh, they certainly envisage this as a sort of you know that the data is continually coming in, and it's this is where the real time comes in. So it, it's not only real time in terms of incidents but it's real-time in terms of workforce management. So that the, 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 the officers can be sort of corrected um, in the instant as well. And there's sometimes an argument that this could be quite a good thing in, in that, you know, in terms of, say, you know, the enormous concerns at present about police violence, et cetera, that, that you would be able to, um, constrain that in various ways or, or, or even stop it through sort of the, these kind of processes. But there is a, an intense sort of performance management aspect to it. And again, in, in their article, they directly point to target corporation and, and you know, workers in other sort of contexts who are, who are using wearable devices to be monitored centrally and they they see the idea of that being extended into policing as a is a, a great positive in terms of optimization so there would be there's a couple of things the first of all they very much move away from you know the the sort of i guess historic image of the police academy and police training so policing becomes continuous training um and it becomes continuous management as well and, and intense management. So, you know, the old thing, which was written by Goldstein, I think, in the 1960s, that policing was a low visibility occupation, you know, it, 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 it can no longer be a low visibility occupation with the kind of range of technologies that are around it. So it does transform it um, quite considerably, I think. Hmm. Yes, and you could say that also these uh, management by performance uh, results in all these kind of perverse incentives, which in themselves are uh, a form of behavior stimuli, right? <laughs> They are intended to produce certain results, increase certain numbers. 
So you operate with punishment, with rewards uh, at the same time. Um, but we also increasingly see that you not only are to manage behaviors as such, but also emotions. There is in management, you have this uh, management of the inner uh, self or whatever it's called, right? And you have all kinds of new technologies that we see in the workplaces where where language itself is being policed in a way. You have these uh, these things that you can use in your email to run a kind of automated analysis. If your email is too emotional, maybe you should change the wording and so on, or if it could be misread and so forth. So you have uh, more and more of these kind of policing surveillance logic coming into different areas, right? Where where you know we could speak of microaggressions can be picked out before they even manifest, right? So there's a similar logic, uh, but you can see that that also the, the emotion itself is to be kind of uh, managed. And and again, this, uh, this, these technologies uh, are there, uh, what do you say, provided by, by private corporations that, that sell these surveillance technologies. And you say, you can see that the market has increased enormously of workplace surveillance during the pandemic, right? Uh, be it in factories for uh, uh, protection or be it in the remote workplace. Uh, how do you look at this kind of uh, expansion of surveillance? Because uh, uh, you have a perfect insight there when it comes to policing and, and management and, and, uh, and you understand surveillance very well. How do you understand this kind of expansion of these technologies? Just when you're talking, it makes me think of, an, of another aspect here, another aspect of the imaginary that's really important. And I think rather than thinking about it, the, the whole imaginary of digitalization um, does imagine a kind of field of total visibility. So, so in terms of surveillance, that's, that, that's very significant. So it, it, it imagines the, the sort of policing horizon as one of total visibility where you can see everything and it's, it's merely a matter of sort of selecting or combining um, aspects that are particularly worrying. And, uh, but the thing I real, see as particularly significant I guess, is the imaginary of automation um, as much as the imaginary of surveillance. Because one thing I didn't do or, or just thought of when you were talking was that the 1960s imaginary imagined the automation of the police call and dispatch function, essentially. What is in this sort of imaginary of what I would call platform policing is ultimately, um, and I'm certainly not saying this is going to happen, but it is ultimately the automation of the officer themselves. Um, already the police decision is this is kind of the frontier that it comes up against is the automation of the police decision and a lot of these technological visions which imagine the, they talk a lot about the single pane of glass experience and the idea that there's all these technologies will come together possibly on the on a handheld device but even possibly through direct communication in the officer's uniform in some way but that the decision itself will be the perfect decision 
and it will be the decision that is calculated by artificial intelligence. The officer is essentially, the idea of police discretion evaporates because the officer is almost like an, is like a, you know, is, is like a deliveroo driver of policing. Um, it, it just delivering a, a predetermined decision. They are merely the sort of, you know, they are the kind of, they are merely delivering the decision that has been calculated in advance. Um, they don't need to worry about exercising discretion or context because the technology is so sophisticated that it has already, in fact, worked out what the ideal thing they should do in the situation is, and they are instructed to do it. Now, I, I know that does sound like reaching into the realms of science fiction a bit, and in reality, it, it, again, I would say I'm talking about the imaginary here because obviously that is not what policing is now, um, and it's not what many people experience when they experience policing. But in the vision of a lot of the marketing material, that is ultimately what they point towards is is, is the is the automation of policing. Absolutely. And you see similar tendencies. I mean, we already have automated credit scoring, right? If you get a loan or don't get a loan, it's usually not decided by any concrete person, but by a, by the computer. You have a social welfare benefit. Some of them are allocated automatically, right? The e-governance, the same logic is in the in e-government. So uh, even legal services can be automated to a certain degree, right? They're already saying that uh, lots of these uh, legal professions can be replaced by uh, AI in the future. Well, um, it's, it's the same principle in a sense, because with body-worn cameras you could form, and video analytics, the idea is that you could analyze enough situations in which officers were involved. You could, you could program it towards what you consider the optimum responses in those sort of situations. And ultimately, you could you could automate the response. Um, so that is what they sort of point towards. And in some ways, that's more sort of... It does envisage total surveillance, I would, I would say that, or, or definitely extensive surveillance. Total transparency. Um, Yeah, total transparency. It certainly, it certainly envisages that, um, but it, it is the automation of policing question that I, I, I tend to think is probably the most significant. I, I mean, and it already happens to some extent. Um, now, whether you see that as a bad thing or not is sort of up for debate, um, because. You know, there are some scholars such as Andrew Ferguson in the United States who writes about big data policing, who talk about blue data um, and the potential for that, you know, meaning data generated by police officers and the potential for that to um, be subject to scrutiny and, and community debate and, you know, making police operations more transparent, which may make them more accountable, more sort of democratically accountable. And, 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 you know, there may be validity in that, but at a sort of, at the level I'm interested in, I mean, I, I, I see it more as an issue of sort of automation. Um, and I would have to say some, of, I, I find some of the potential imaginaries in that field slightly disturbing. <laughs> 
one question is who decides on the optimum? Well, I think that is the crucial question. Who programs, you know, <laughs> who programs the automated police response? There is another issue here too. In, 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 for, for policing scholars, I think there's bigger questions here about, you know, what policing actually is, because we get to the... We get to a situation where policing would be merely sort of dealing with incidents of physical disorder and interdicting those as they sort of occur. Um, and again, it would have it would have no sort of social remit. Now, people may have differing, you know, you know. Fully respect those are debatable kind of issues, but it, it, it's, it, it opens up interesting possibilities, and I think does open a possible window that is a bit more concerning of a kind of, you know, a privatised real-time governance. Um, that, it, yeah, the. the <laughs> There are scenarios that I think are sort of concerning within this field that sort of don't have easy answers, I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. And we see more and more of this uh, privatization. And and you uh, have been recently working more and more on the concept of platform policing. Maybe you want to say something. What is it? And how does well, it Platform policing um, is a term that myself and a few other people, such as Kelly Gates and Simon Egbert and Thomas Linder, have used. But it's it essentially refers to a shift that happened. Again, a lot of this is driven in the United States, but it does reverberate out due to its sort of strength of its economy and its technology industry. Um, the widespread adoption of body-worn cameras um, after the police shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, um, and the Obama government's response to that was to sponsor sort of the widespread adoption by policing agencies of body-worn cameras Body-worn cameras introduced a technical problem in that most police agencies didn't have the storage capacity for the amount of video footage that, that um, police officers were collecting. So the solution to that was to begin for police agencies to begin to utilise cloud storage in a much more regular fashion. And large cloud storage providers such as Amazon Web Services and, and, and um, Microsoft started, started to offer actual sort of packages to police agencies where they could move their data storage to the cloud um, and integrate a lot of different data streams in the cloud and have not only storage but analytical capacity as well so the idea was essentially of a kind of central node in the cloud which was private um so 
in all the devices from the predictive policing software, data from the predictive policing software, the body-worn cameras, sensors on uniforms, all that data would be going up into the cloud and would return in it having been processed. So officers would have sort of this single device which, which, with which they would receive sort of processed data from the cloud and would constantly be generating, you know, it would be a, it would be a, a circuit where data would, would circulate between the police agency and the cloud continuously. So that is platform policing, essentially, and that's the one that I guess I've been referring to a bit today because that's where some of the more what, what seemingly outlandish fantasies of digital policing are based on this concept of cloud storage and the, and the integration of devices um, within, the, within the cloud. And it, it answers some historic problems because it means that... Um, the police agencies can often buy software as a service, so so they don't they, they don't need to actually. The, the big problem with police and technology it used to be that um, that they would spend huge amounts of money, and the systems were often outdated by the time they'd actually managed to get them up up and running. There were legacy systems, all kinds of problems. This means that the the problem of uh, police information technology infrastructure becomes the problem of the cloud provider. Um, so that's the attraction for police agencies. It means that they just become, you know, it's a bit like a sort of Netflix subscription. <laughs> they're subscribing to this to the service, but they're not, but the service, it's the, the problem of the provider to kind of upgrade the the infrastructure so so it's attractive to agencies from that sort of way but it also opens up um a lot of fantasies about real-time situational awareness and you know what can be achieved through this integration of data um and there's a whole sort of specific imaginary tie to this that i've been looking at more recently that's uh, fascinating um and also aligns with the imaginary of smart city. And uh, well, it's part it, it's part of the smart city because um, if you look at um, Microsoft's Azure cloud, it actually there's a there's a justice and safety cloud, um, which is part of the smart city infrastructure. So it, it and it talks to all the other infrastructure. So the you know the the public utilities, electricity, and water, and all. It's all connected in a kind of, um, you know, across a whole, you know, larger infrastructure in which the justice and public safety cloud, which I must say, interestingly, is not only police, but it incorporates the whole criminal justice system through the parole. Um, it, that is joined with the rest of the smart city infrastructure. So in smart cities, platform policing is the vision. So that's what you would it's part of the very elaborate visions of um smart cities or uh, that we have yes so it is definitely part of a big picture <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and before we started recording you mentioned that you've been reading heidegger recently on technology and <laughs> do you have something to uh, say on that <laughs> 
Well, it's it, it, it. What I have to say about it is actually in a new chapter that I've got coming out called the New Platform Policing. But it, it, it I, it, he talked about the dark shadow of technology. He's got a wonderful uh, um, piece called The Age of the World Picture, um, which I find actually more useful than some of his other pieces on technology. Um, but in that. Um, he's really talking about a drive to calculate the incalculable. Um, and he sees that as, as a sort of fatal error or, or blind spot. Um, it, and he writes about... It, it's a very provocative piece, I think, and it, 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 particularly in our current age. Um, because I'm not articulating it very well, but I, I, I found it I, I found it quite a powerful piece. I, I, I think this desire to calculate the incalculable is presently. He talks about a dark shadow hanging over this. And I think there is a dark shadow um, for our societies generally in trying to continually calculate the incalculable, the drive towards the total quantification of everything that exists. And it's that that he talks about in the age of the world picture, that it gives, his argument is essentially that it, it, it gives human beings a false sense of control but they are somehow inexorably drawn towards that sense of control, which is in itself um, quite a dark force, or at least that's my interpretation of what he says in that essay. Um, and, and as I see some of the developments or some of the potential developments from digitalization, not only in policing, but it, across the social field generally, um, uh, I, I I wouldn't claim to be a Heidegger expert by any means, but I think he, he touched upon something very important in terms of, for me, the things that I would think are important in, in terms of community and sociality are the things that I think are sacrificed um, in the drive towards digitalization, instantaneity, and, and what to me, at times, looks disturbingly like a, a, the the almost total atomization of society, which which potentially, which I, I again, I, I'm not saying that is happening because it's certainly not. But you know, we still have sociality, and you know, we still have community. But I, I, I fear that some of the sort of exuberance technological imaginaries actually start quite disturbingly to embrace that vision um, as one of sort of convenience, ease and control, but a, a, a society sort of stripped of spontaneity and, um, and collectivity. And, and, and in a broader sense, that's what worries me. And it's why I'm, in my own little way, I look at policing, but, you know, I'm concerned about those broader questions and how they manifest themselves through policing, I guess. 
Absolutely. And it also presents a vision that is completely purified, right? One thing is this atomized, it abolishes the social, but it's also a vision of completely pure reality, right? <laughs> well, it, it is, yes. I mean, it, it's, you know, in, in policing terms, it's the crime-free system, the completely ordered society, the crime-free society. And they, uh, you know, this, again, this does actually go back to the 1960s because this was the idea um, of, there was an idea in the 1960s that police computerization could um, could make the crime-free society manifest, that with enough, enough technology you would actually produce a crime-free society. And that's, we sort of hear that a little bit again, but, yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, I, I, I find it fascinating, but I, I find the, the, the broader picture troubling. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, before we uh, started recording, you also uh, talked about uh, the idea of uh, abolishing the police and you had a very original take uh, on it. <laughs> oh, it's not an original take. No, I, if the police, think, police I, will I mean, abolish I, I themselves. Think, <laughs> but it's... Well, I, I think I said to you that, uh, I, you know, in some ways the police may be abolishing themselves. Um and what I meant by that was that the police for police organisations, I think, are becoming more and more privatised, but not in the way we might have expected, say, in the 1980s or 90s, where we were sort of imagining, um, you know, police cars driving around with corporate logos on them or something of that sort. And not, not a sort of overt privatisation where a company just buys the police force and runs it. But they are being privatised from the inside out because increasingly they 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 are dependent upon private contractors who control more and more of the data. And you know, there's a, a weaving of contract, you know, private public contracts and complex sort of organisations, and also digitalisation. Um, often allows the fragmentation of various tasks and the outsourcing of them. So you, you do see a narrowing of the police function very much. Now, some people may see that as desirable, but there is a narrowing of the function down to simply, basically, the, 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 the application of force and the intervention in specific moments of disorder and that, that, that this kind of stripping of police right down to that almost pure power. And, and a lot of the, you know, what were often considered more extraneous social um, functions of policing are, are stripped away and are often privatised um, in the process. Um, I think it's a really complex picture and I wouldn't, it, it's a difficult debate, but, I, you know, my concern would be what happens at the final juncture when even that application of force is private. Um, you know, <laughs> there may be good cases to be made in lots of activities that the police are involved in or lots of tasks that they undertake at the moment that they you know, there are better agencies that could do them. And, and I fully accept those arguments and they're certainly, it's certainly worth having those discussions. But I, I do, you know, I, I think when we sort of 
say abolish the police we, we we need to sort of have very careful discussions about what we're replacing it with and, and how um and it's worth it's worth noting that you know the idea of policing is simply crime control um has always run slightly counter to the reality of policing certainly evident in police ethnographies and and the you know the research on on, on policing, so it, it, it's always been about more than crime control, and historically it was about much much more. If we if we go back to the sort of eighteenth century conceptions of police, which was a, an enormously broad concept of social governance, but I guess I, I see complexities, and I, you know I, I see sort of um, I see devils in the detail. In a lot of places, I guess, when we when we talk about abolishing the police, that that might not that might have unintended and potentially very unwanted consequences. So I I, I think it's a I'll I'll sit on the fence there a bit and say that I think it's a complex debate. <laughs> so what we're looking at is actually uh, increasing privatization combined with real time uh, governance. Uh, Combined with kind of uh, behavioral uh, governance as well, <laughs> I would say, uh, and uh, automated decision making, uh, right? And uh, more and more of these decisions are made by private actors. Uh, uh, what is the kind of ultimate uh, result of all this? Where, where the, where is politics? Where is the social? And where is the state <laughs> in all this? <laughs> well. Um... In the imaginary, and I will stick to the imaginary at this point, the social doesn't really exist. So uh, it, it, it's a series of sort of disconnected events, um, each one sort of just feeding back into the <laughs> into the you know epistemological kind of growth of uh, the other events that are analysed and inform future events. But there is no social as such. And, and that is perhaps one of the more problematic aspects of uh, the sort of, you know, platform policing imaginary, that it, 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 it doesn't really have a social um, in that sort of sense. Um, whereas politics, well, that, that, that's a really really, really important question, but not one I have the answer to. Um, I, I, I do have a kinder response to that, though, um, because I don't think the answer is in some of the... I think the answer operates on a far more macro level than policing, and I don't think the answer is to sit round and debate the or you know collectively design some algorithm that's going to be more equitable and just that might that might be a good thing to do but i don't think ultimately it it, it, it you know it deals with the larger questions at play here and i think the larger questions at play are really issues about the shape of the digital economy and our economies um and the the level of centralization of, of of you know of wealth basically within 
a number of very big players and how much say they have over the shape of the social. So I think it's, you know, there are specific issues to policing, but there's, there's no doubt for me that it's reflecting, uh, you know, macro level changes within capitalism that are, that make it an important field to discuss, but which are ultimately subject to those forces, you know, and I, I, I think the answers to that question are, are, are a bit beyond me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, some... Uh, I, I do wonder, in a, in a broader sense, I wonder, because, I mean, we, we have a lot of technologies being foisted upon us at the moment that we really don't need. And I, if I'm honest about my own position, and this is stepping aside from the area, I, I really think we need to look at some sort of detechnologisation it, it, to, to some extent, um, you, you know, we're starting to get overwhelmed with it. it does, you know, we've been smart cities, electric cars, all these things. No one's actually asking or wants these things. Um, and, and everything's smart, but is it smart? You know, like, and a lot of the time, you know, the scariest vision of the future is perhaps not the society of total control but you know a society of kind of dumb surveillance where you you, you know like just constantly pressing an app on your smartphone that doesn't work and that all of society becomes the sort of dysfunctional you know massive weird weird decisions that don't <laughs> <laughs> that would be my nightmare vision. In some ways, I think that vision's more scary than the vision of total... Because the vision's always... The, the imaginaries are always of total efficiency and smooth planes of operation. But we know from, our, you know, just moving around our own homes how much this stuff so often doesn't work. You know, so, I mean... <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that is the utter nightmare. You promised efficiency optimization and it actually doesn't work. <laughs> well, it doesn't but, work when you've got a whole society structured around of it. Of course. I mean, yeah. that, that, that for me is sort of the terrifying vision. Yeah, it gets uh, algorithmic injustice gets a completely different uh, meaning there, right? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, well, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I would return to sort of societies of control in a way there because, I mean, the most terrifying sort of t type of control is the arbitrary decision, really, or the inexplicable decision. It, you know, and if you think of it, I don't know if you've had this experience or, you know, it, that inexplicable thing when your card doesn't work in the machine and yet it should and no one can seem to explain why, Imagine a society of that moment over and over again. That's kind of the... <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which is why in some ways, I, I, you know, in some ways, it's, I, I, I think there are areas of society that we could look at simple, local, detechnologized solutions that involved, you know some fairly mundane concepts of community and conversation and that that might be a lot more useful than worrying about, you know, fixating on what the latest app or, you know, 
shiny tool that the tech industry has come up with can do would be far more useful than <laughs> than that. But uh, yes, so these are my contemplations in the, in the dark hours of the morning. No, I think I agree with uh, with your conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> And on this note, uh, this was Dean Wilson, Professor of Criminology at the University of Sussex on predictive policing and much more. <laughs>